sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, boss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Your home for rumor, innuendo, and other stuffs about music that you like. We're just so we're, much. we're testing out a new theme right there. That's uh, <laughs> let us know what you think. Thumbs up, thumbs down. We are the Story Guys at gmail.com. We'll consider all inquiries and that was opinions. co-written that was co-written by max martin i, tell you. <laughs> I was like i need you to give me i need you to give me some britney spears-esque me, type thing give me everything you got max give me everything you it. got uh listen we lost another one already this year i can't believe it uh we're, we're like end of january 2023 and david crosby died at the age of 81 last yeah. week and we we knew we had to wait and do a full-blown episode because he is a ripe subject for this show who we have not yeah, spent we, a lot of time on we actually discussed i'd sent a note to brian and usually brian is way faster than me on the trigger on this and i sent brian a note and i was like david crosby's passed away i was drinking bourbon with a bunch of strangers when you texted you, me yeah. And you normally are real quick, t- and you didn't respond, so I was like, "Huh, hey, I bet Brian's doing I looked something. up. I looked up, someone was like, hey, is everything okay? And I was like, yeah, David Crosby just died. I got to go. <laughs> it's like a whole so, thing. You don't understand. It's a whole thing yeah. in my life. And actually, it was a good friend of mine, and he was like, oh, that's a big deal to you. And I was like, yeah, it is. Uh, listen, I, I say he was- Whole he, episode. Okay. Whole episode. We weren't going to be able to- No, no way. To take and I mean, think about what to say. Here's a great example of why. The subhead of Jim Farber's piece in the New York Times, which is great, by the way, if you haven't read it, uh, he was an original member of the Birds and a founder of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, but he was almost as well known for his troubled personal life as for his music. There yeah, it is. And that's it. One of the first things you texted me when the news came down was you said that his music can never really moved you. But you, you said, quote, his music never moved me, but this guy was so interesting. Yeah, yeah, I did say because I spent I spent some time, you know, like as normal people do when someone passes away, they that's a musician, they go and they look at their work. And and I I did really like my sister was older and but she didn't leave me CSN and Y records, you know, but in retrospect now I, I get it like his harmonies were the glue. Oh, man. And, and, and and that was I did this today, man. I went and was watching some live video and was like, because that's what you read, right? Is that their harmonies, their harmonies, their harmonies. You need to be reminded, oh, like you need to listen to them because they are amazing. There's something that people get really, they, it really reaches out to them. That well, and I think part of the reason why it it feels different now when you watch it is because we know. I mean, especially music fans like you and I know how much manipulation happens in the studio. For people, so when I hear a, a good harmony in a pop song now, I just assume it's manipulated. Not no shade to anybody creating music. I'm just saying like there's a they different level that yeah. we all accept. And so to watch these guys on stage hit these harmonies, it's otherworldly. Yeah, I need everyone to remember all of that existed basically on paper until shares believe. And that's that's where it happened. That's the starting <laughs> point right there is where someone said, oh, we can... We can manipulate the shit out of this. We can totally do this, and then we can change the pitch and the key. It, and it's so funny, too, because I have an 11-year-old who you know, is forced to listen to music all the time because he hangs out with me. And he will say, he's a, he's a hip-hop fan. He will tell you he likes rap music, but he does not like auto-tune. And he, I mean, this is not a conversation he and I have ever had, but he will say, 
I don't understand why this guy has to have so much auto-tune on his voice, right? Um, so when you hear it done in pure fashion, it is still very startling. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's they've done other work. Like when you hear people talk about how Grant, Graham Nash is an amazing singer. Oh, yeah. Um, they had other projects together. And, and with having Neil Young in the group, like it just added a whole other dimension to it. I now I realize there's lots of Na- Nash and Crosby records, the two of them. Yeah, there and were gosh. like there were a lot of those. Like and we'll talk about that. Like okay, yeah. so he he's had this outsized presence culturally, right? I mean, and you you were totally right to say he's very interesting. But because of the 10 years between us and age, we also discovered the other night when talking about this yeah. that that our immediate thoughts of David Crosby were different. When I asked you your defining David Crosby moment, you said Mugshot. Mug, mugshot. And, yeah. and I said, sperm. <laughs> I was eight, and I remember the I remember the like a video of him being really violent. Like he was I was like, oh man, that guy's great. And then there's like that mugshot was awful. Yeah, and it's become like famous. Like when I saw it too, I was like, have I seen this on t-shirts? Like it's you know, and you can look at it in the show notes, you'll know what we're talking about. You've seen it even if you don't know it's him, you've probably seen this mugshot. Um we're gonna talk about both these things, the mugshot and the sperm. But let's go back to the beginning. You and I think most rockers are interesting because that's what we do, but the oddity that is David Crosby is next level. Um part of this mystique that you alluded to. What's remarkable about it is that it precedes him. He is he is born into this. I did not know this. Essentially, if we had royalty in this country, like our British friends, David Crosby would be a royal descendant. Oh, I'm 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 ready. Take take me to the mountaintop. His, Who the hell is his family? So they were all descended from the the Van Rhinizerliers. I, I really practiced this and still butchered it. Rin. Zaira Lears. They're Dutch folks who who settled in New York back like in the 17th century. Wow. You know, e- even old New York was once old Amsterdam. <laughs> Why they changed it? I can't say. People just like it better that way. So take me back to Con- Okay, sorry. <laughs> take I just, me I can't- back to Constantinople. <laughs> when I hear Dutch New York, I immediately start thinking about that song. So who, who's famous in his family? Do you have famous people? So yeah, so Herman Melville was a descendant. Edith, Edith Wharton was a cousin. What? They were all so. This is like classic northeastern blue blood shit, right? This is the blueprint for that. Wow. When you think about like East Coast rich hoity-toity founders of the country, David Crosby's daddy came down that line. But David Crosby's dad also the reason maybe uh, uh, for the artistic itch that little Davy gets, right? Floyd Crosby, that is David Crosby's dad's name, and that guy won an Academy Award. Oh, no, 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 no. 1931 for cinematography for a silent film called Taboo, A Story of the South Seas. But he will make the transition to talkies, as they call them. <laughs> First, now yeah, we're going to go do some talkies. Hey, See, always... step right up. Read all about it. Uh, how, so, how interesting. Yeah. Cinema, uh, an an, an it, Oscar for cinematography. In 1931. With, Think about how know, with, early that is. With... With no no vocals, <laughs> and and then uh, he ends up working on Gary Cooper's High Noon, which is a very famous movie. He will he will work with Roger Corman. Like this dude has some major contributions, but the one he is most famous for is his son David and uh, David's brother Ethan. So David always been a little challenging 
in his approach to other people. So, you know, you're going to hear about this if you probably know this, uh, but David is quite the character and he rubs a lot of people the wrong way his entire life. This starts at a young age. Uh, that beat of his own drum vibe that will come to define him uh, was even there when he flunked out of high school, when he dropped out of college. But he learns to play guitar and he goes to Greenwich Village in the 60s and people start to take notice. And he'll get introduced through a mutual musical connection to this guy named Roger McGuinn. Oh, he, that's how they met? Yeah, mutual musical connection. Stage. Cool. And Roger McGuinn has this uh, group called the Jet Set. And this group will eventually invite him in. They will end up becoming the birds, and they will record a Bob Dylan song called Mr. Tambourine Man. And their career will take off. Mr. Tambourine Man, fun fact, one of the first songs I learned to play in guitar. I had like oh. the, you remember that like blue covered uh, Bob Dylan's greatest hits that came out like in the 80s probably? Mm-hmm. Sure. I had the the chord book for that. It was like the same cover, but it had all those songs in it. And so that was the easiest one because it was a I basic folk song. I can't believe I've never even, I'm going to play that after this. Oh yeah. It's like about it. D-A-B-I I don't know. I'm making chords up, but it's very easy. Um yeah. The, the is there anything you want to talk about with the birds? Yeah, uh, think about think about other American bands and think about the birds and where people talk about the birds. And I think it like a whole generation or two or three now have, have passed them by, and they're underrated, understated, and, and like an incredibly important band. There was like Grand a Park, period where people Grand, were calling them the American Beatles, which the I the American. Right. They were the American Beatles. And and the the best part about to me the American Beatles is that David Crosby was in that band and so was Graham Parsons. <laughs> I <laughs> forget that. I the forget Flying that. Burrito Brothers. Yeah. Like that's and uh you know they they did a they did amazing stuff. They they injected country into the folk music and you know they were they were great. So Man, I, I do do love the birds. I got a time life comp when I was I don't know, probably my son's age now, 11 or 12. I talk about these all the time on the show. Those time life comps changed my life. But I remember getting the one specifically that had eight miles high on it. Yeah. And what a great song. Hearing right. the 12 string, like if people were like defining moments in your musical history, hearing the 12 string open on eight miles high for the first, like I remember where I was and like the feeling like that is one of the most dramatic musical moments in my life is hearing that. Well, Cause like my dad had a 12 string, but I never heard it played that way. My dad plays guitar like I do, right? Like with enthusiasm, but not necessarily with the skill of David Crosby or Roger McGuinn. Uh, and so it, it blew me away. You know, fun fact that I, I ran across when researching things, uh, Crosby has a songwriting credit on eight miles high, but the story goes that he barely did anything. Like he, he said like one line and they were like, Oh, let's add that in. And then he was like, songwriting credit, uh, <laughs> free base. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Stop. Uh, so, so anyway, what, what happens? Wait, we, we don't want to get too distracted by the birds. What is the significance of David Crosby in the birds and of the birds? If you spend any time watching, David Crosby interviews, you will notice very quickly, as I already said, he's a character, and that he he was uniquely gifted. I couldn't think of another way to put this. He was uniquely gifted at being mouthy. Uh, Yeah, he got, he's, he's pissed people off forever. Well, I mean, all the way to the end, he was doing stern interviews and talking about Joni Mitchell and, you know, making Neil Young mad. I mean, he was all the way to the end in the last couple of years was doing that sort of stuff. And and to me, he was he was very open. 
you know, was like, so why doesn't, you know, why, why, why don't, what about Neil? And it's like, Neil hates my guts. Like, yeah. why does oh, Neil yeah. hate your guts? And he goes, because I talked about his girlfriend. Oh, yeah. 100% transparent. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he he was but a very. I don't think he really apologized for it, but I don't know. Yeah, well, he does. There is there is a long thing. We'll get to this at the end, maybe. But like, there's a long apology he made to Neil Young about the Daryl Hannah stuff. But that that's just so. I mean, those men are like literally were in their seventies and eighties when that was going on. I'm like, guys, come on, like stop yeah. it. Uh, and Graham Graham and Hid did not make up before he passed away. Well, and that's I, you know, we're gonna get into this too. But these guys all have a lot of reasons to have problems with him. Like, I mean, it's very legitimate. I don't feel like David Crosby is the victim in this story. That That's correct. Yeah, we can't, yeah. And and other than just being mouthy, eh, some other things make it difficult being in a band with uh, Crosby. For sure. And that's that's really where we're going to park the car and talk for a while in a few minutes. But let's, let's keep talking about the birds. Two things commonly pointed to is the reason that they part ways with Crosby. One is the, the threesome song. Uh, if, if you don't know about this, you should. Triad. It's called Triad. Yeah, uh, Crosby writes it. The band records it. But then there's this internal struggle. Uh, half of them decide they don't want to put it out. They instead opt for a Carol King and Jerry Goffin song, which, I mean, come on. That, that makes sense uh, on paper. But they, he then gives it to Jefferson Airplane. And Grace Slick sings it, which is amazing. Um, there's also, and probably more well-known, the matter of the Monterey Pop Festival when, when David Crosby started yelling that there was more than one shooter on the grassy knoll when Kennedy was shot. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, let's, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure it's in the show notes to, to Brian. It's, um, it's um, you just, all you have to look up is, he was a friend of mine, Monterey Pop Festival. And like they have it where he opens it and he starts basically explaining the audience about how there is a conspiracy. There is more than one shooter. And at the end, he says something like, evidence has been suppressed, and this is your country. Oh, it's intense, dude. And you, and, the and, other guys are so mad that he's doing this. And his voice is, like, shaky, and not in almost a bad way. It's, it's, it's strange and beautiful, uh, but is another reason why you should never take acid when you're going to play in front of thousands of people. Because <laughs> stuff, stuff so, can happen. I heard it wasn't just... Cross oh no! So this is, this is funny. You mentioned this to me that uh, when we were initially talking, and you said, you know, he was he was really high when all that went down, and so yeah. I went to verify that because that's what I do, and I could not find verification that said for sure that David Crosby was. But I did read something that was like basically everybody at Monterey Pop that year was tripping balls. <laughs> like, yeah. so you, I mean, if everybody else was quote unquote, David Crosby was the guy who got him the drugs, you know, like that yeah. sort of was always his role. Yeah. The most psychedelic moment to me ever watching any of that Monterey Pop stuff is Hendrix is up doing something and they cut to Mama Cass and you can read her lips, and she's just saying, wow. <laughs> and it's like, you know, he'd never played a gig, you know, he'd, yeah. he was playing the Chitlin circuit with Little Richard and stuff, but like he didn't, he didn't have a band in America yet, so that was his first gig. So this behavior and, and other instances like it do get him kicked out of the birds. Um, but You don't say. It, it, it's kind of hard to talk about Crosby without talking about Laurel Canyon. And I know this has come up on the show before, but remember, yeah. that's this sure. L.A. neighborhood. It still exists. It overlooks Hollywood. And in the 60s, it becomes this place where all these West Coast folk singers hang out. And that leads to a lot of collaborating and, let's be honest, a lot of fucking. Uh, here's a short list of people that <laughs> Who? are hanging out. You should have said it was rated R before we started, dude. <laughs> we'll mark it explicit. Here's a short list. Cass Elliott, who you just mentioned. Joni Mitchell. 
uh, Frank Zappa, Jim Morrison, Carol King, Canned Heat, uh, members of the Eagles, the band Love, Neil Young, Brian Wilson, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, uh, Bonnie Raitt, Linda Ronstadt, Harry Nilsson. I always forget that Bonnie Raitt's like part of this crew. That's how long yeah, she's been around. She still too. feels more modern to me than a lot of these people. Uh, yeah. The Monkees, which kind is always my favorite, that the Monkees were just getting high with all these people all the time and then going on TV. Um, yeah. Of course, going Dave, the rainbow. It's so weird. David Crosby is mixed up in the middle of all this, and he will bring back uh, a, a girl whose name I've already mentioned. Uh, who he sees in Florida in a club in 1967. This gets missed, I think. He discovers, basically, Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell is is hoofing it through the United States. She comes from Canada. She's in different parts of the States playing her folk songs. Nothing's really happening. David Crosby walks in and sees her in a Florida club, convinces her to come back to L.A., and um, she becomes part of that Laurel Canyon scene as well. Yeah, he basically gets knighted with being the guy that discovered her. But I, I have seen that, like, it's kind of argued, like, eh, he wasn't really the guy that discovered her. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. he's, but he's, but I mean, he brought he brought her to the party. I mean, literally brought her to the party. That's right. like essentially what he did was like come back to L.A. with her and be and introduce her to everybody. Yeah, then you can sleep with my friends after you stop sleeping with me. Which, which, why did he stop sleeping with her? What was the story? Well, because he's apparently, I think you mentioned earlier, mouthy. So, so they it was they didn't they weren't together long. Okay, this we'll put put this in the show notes. This is from uh, Ultimate Classic Rock. So, um, she wrote this song. It's 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 a famous song. It's the song about the midway, and it was on clouds. That's what record it was on. And so, um, this was where you mentioned Stern. So. Cross did this. Crosby did this interview either last year or the year before with with Howard Stern, and so she came in and said she had this new song, and uh, and he did say it. She seemed kind of different, and then um, she started to sing it. And, and it was wait, they're they're like at the monkey's house, or one of them, right? right? Like when they one do of this, them, like there's a party the mon- and she shows yeah. up. Yeah, and there's tons of people, and everyone stops because Joni's going to sing a song because Joni Mitchell. It makes beautiful. Is, isn't it crazy music. to think? I mean, again, back to this Laurel Canyon thing. Isn't it crazy to think that all these people were in the same room all the time and would just be like, "Here, listen to what I came up with on Saturday while yeah. I was drinking and wine." I'm, yeah. And imagine just the the like the room, how quiet it must have been. And she had this song, but it was a breakup song for Crosby. And then just I don't know if she's trying to be terrible jerky, but she played it twice. Yeah. <laughs> That's how she broke up with David Crosby. Is that she slashed his tires in front of his friend? Like she burned, burned his, burned that head of his. In case you didn't get it the first time, let me play it one more time. You know, it, the, these parties clearly were wild. This is also where he meets Stephen Stills. David Crosby meets Stephen Stills at one of these parties. They will then hang out and meet up with the guy Graham Nash, who's in that band, The Hollies, and the three of those dudes will decide to play music together. They'll play their second gig ever at a little farm in Woodstock, New York in 1969. That's their second yeah. gig. Yeah, yeah. And we just almost had, uh, we were talking about Jeff Beck, who had passed away. The Jeff Beck group almost played Woodstock. And do you know that? Oh, yeah. And, I saw that when he passed. Yeah. And they just, they they didn't because someone, Jeff Beck thought that someone was, his wife was cheating on him. Um, as Rod Stewart said, he thought that the gardener was shagging his wife, and it turned out not to be true. 
so they real, didn't play. That's a real ri- you take you take the risk to stay home, see see if she's up to no good. Turns out she's fine, and you missed Woodstock. Um, yeah. You know, so Neil Young eventually will make this trio a quartet. Uh, after the first record, these guys will have a lot of success for, for five years ish or so. But there's a phrase that comes to define CSNY when you read back, and it is "quote unquote" constant bickering. I saw that. <laughs> I saw that a lot in the research. What a drag! And think about like the work, like how I mean, it it, it can't be like just all of the catalog is amazing, but. The, the parts of it that, that is are so significant to the American songbook. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then there's, like, personal tragedy that happens here. He loses a girlfriend in a car accident, which is oh, yeah, yeah. really awful. And another thing that I think gets overlooked in all of this is the trauma of that. Uh, her name was Christine Hutton. And, uh, yeah, she she dies in a um, in a car accident. And he will say... In some interviews after that, that um, this is where his depression and his drug use really start. Um, let, let me read this passage from the New York Times obit. Uh, his impish indulgences turned potentially lethal many times. He became wow. nearly as well known for his drug offenses, weapons charges, and prison stances for his music. And by the mid-1970s was addicted to both cocaine and heroin. Um, this is a quote from Crosby, People Magazine, 1990. You don't sit down and say, gee, I think I'll become a junkie. When I started out doing drugs, it was marijuana and psychedelics. It was fun. It was the 60s. But later, he continued, drugs became more for blurring pain. You don't realize you're getting as strung out as you are, and I had the money to get more and more addicted. Yeah. And he made it. God. I mean, it's Dude, wild that he made it to 81. I mean, and we're yeah. not—we're just at the edge of this story. But as we get into this story, remind yourself that the guy just died, <laughs> and he should have died a long time ago. So, yeah, as he's spiraling in the 70s, so this really is—he starts to go downhill in the 70s. But he leverages his two stints in two successful bands to keep him working and fed. There are ill-fated reunions for both the Birds and CSNY at different times. Uh, you already alluded to this, but he and Graham Nash put out quite a bit as a duo. Yeah, the one that I that stuck with me. There's one just called Graham Nash and David Crosby, '72, and I put it on, and I was I was just freaking. I'd never listened to it, man. It was I was stunned. I think I liked it more than some other CSN records, to be honest. But anyway, just there's something that says about their chemistry and what how they they the two of them sounded together, you know. He drops a poorly received solo record around this time. It's interesting because he tries it once and people really turn on him for it. And so he doesn't do it again for a long time. Um, when we get to the 80s is when we get to the moment that young Murdoch was forced to take notice of this 40-something-year-old man. Uh, eight-year-old Murdoch gets to see 40-something-year-old David Crosby in the aforementioned mugshot. And it, this is a good point in the show to stop down and mention the books that David Crosby wrote. Uh, did, he, did he write... Well, they're autobiographies, they're, right? He, he didn't write fiction. He didn't write like well, Moby Dick Part Two. <laughs> <laughs> Leaning in on his heritage and his relation to Herman Melville, he decided to see. It's funny though that you talk about a big fish being involved in this. Okay, so yeah, I am Cross. Uh, so he used the same co-writer for both of these. So it's arguable if they're autobiography or auto fiction or whatever the hell you want to call it. Uh, I don't know if if you know this. Do you know who the co-writer was? On these no. books? The, I, I didn't know he had autobiographies. The, or he had. the co-writer on these books is Carl Gottlieb. Now, if if you're a movie head, 
listening to this pod, you know that name. That is the guy who wrote the screenplay for Jaws, Jaws 2, Jaws 3D, and a movie called The Jerk with Steve Martin. <laughs> he hates those kids. Uh, oh I, I, I love I make this. a very comfortable living. Jackie Mason. <laughs> Best supporting actor in that movie. Good gosh. Okay. Uh, I love this detail because it points out everything we need to know about how seriously to take David Crosby's stories. And it gives us insight into his own self-image. Let me just put it this way. He hired a Hollywood screenwriter to write what he will pass off as his (laughs) actual life. Not once, but two times. Two times. So... There's this website called Spendity, and they took this time a few years ago to compile what they learned in the Crosby Gottlieb book, Long Time Gone. This is a little harder to find. Um, I I do think you can get it on the Kindle app. Um, But so this is his self-reported relationship with drugs. Now, in the show notes, you can find this Spendity write-up. Shouts to Kelly Marks, the writer who put this all together. Let me give you some highlights. Uh, They tellingly divide this exploration into two parts, up to 1980, and then after 1980. Mm. The reason for that, of course, is all tied up in this mugshot we keep referring to. So intro into drugs for Crosby starts in high school, fairly innocent stuff, helium, cough syrup, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> helium. <laughs> ah, the good old days when I, was, when I was sucking down helium and cough syrup. Did I ever tell you I went on a blind date one time and, and, and the girl was acting so strange? <laughs> And then oh I was like, God. what is her what is her fucking deal? I asked somebody and they're like, oh, she's robo tripping. And I was like, what <laughs> is that? And they're like, oh, she's taking cough syrup. And I and I didn't know whether I was like angry that she decided to drink a bunch of cough syrup before she went on a date <laughs> with some guy she didn't know. Um and I who, and I dined I, I dined and dashed on that date. I'd split. Who was the person who was able to like just a random stranger in the restaurant was like, I believe that woman's on cough syrup. Like, how did you come to this revelation? Somebody it was a setup, you know, it was a oh. thing. Meet somebody and um I'm pretty sure who I remember set me up because that's pretty classic of him. But um <laughs> But yeah. Unresolved was, tension. Unresolved tension. Yeah, it's like Oh uh, but God, yeah, that dude. was you have. Syrup. I will say, you have never told me that story. In what, what your fifteen year relationship? I'm very sad. Actually, I'm very excited. I'm excited. There's still excitement in our relationship. There's things it, you haven't told me. I know that's true. When you're still <laughs> stuff for you to talk about, that means there's still love there happening. It was at a still bar love. called the Flying Flying Saucer in Nashville. I remember the bar too. So oh that really God. happened. Oh my yeah. God. So he starts playing folk music as a young adult. And while he's doing that, somebody passes him a marijuana cigarette, as you do. This will lead him to becoming a weed connoisseur pretty quickly. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this. It seems to be confirmed and true. He showed the Beatles American weed. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that where he's like saying he's their guy. Yeah, they would come and he does this great impression in interviews of John Lennon calling him and asking to to get the weed. He says he goes through this whole thing. It may have been the Stern interview where he talks about how they had only had at that point in Britain a little bit of marijuana mixed with like hash or something like that was yeah, sort of tobacco. what people smoked. Yeah. Tobacco. Yeah. That's what it was. They mix it with tobacco. And yeah. he was like, that's awful. And so when they came here, I gave them the real stuff and they could not get enough of it, which, you know, I, they, I, I like it. It's poetic because he will also say that hard day's night is the movie that made him want to be a rocker. So uh, I like the poetry there in 1969. He runs into trouble with the law. Uh, because they claim they smell marijuana emanating from his car as he drives past them, which is 
fun for a lot of reasons. The mental imagery of just like a cloud of smoke coming out of a shitty car that David Crosby is driving down the Pacific Coast Highway or whatever. I yeah, it, has, it doesn't have a muffler on it. Yeah, that's what uh, I hear. They, they don't get... He doesn't get in real trouble because there's like an illegal search and seizure that happens because cops. I mean, come on, guys. Dave's not here, man. That's funny. <laughs> uh, there's a story from a year or two later that he's sailing with friends in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico Jeez. on his boat. Okay. And vigilantes board looking for weed. They don't find what? any. They plant what? evidence. They take people on the boat to jail. And then Crosby pays off the chief of police keeps the quote-unquote evidence and everybody goes back to the boat and parties now that seems like a that seems like a like an 80s sex romp script he's got a hollywood screenwriter writing the book oh that's right that's where we still are it probably is a made-up sex comedy joke i don't know unrelated sort of to the drugs there's also this ongoing thread through Crosby's life. I don't know if you saw this when you read anything about him. That he he got in trouble for having a firearm constantly. Mm. And now later in life, later he will say it's because of John Lennon getting shot that oh, he just got scared. So, oh, that's so sad if that's the thing. But he got in trouble for it a lot way before John Lennon died. Like all through the 70s he was getting oh. in trouble. There was like a waiting yeah. at a parking lot attendance uh, burglar. There was like him scaring off guys trying to steal stuff. Like there was always a, a gun around. Um, here, I got a question. We're just gonna take a hard right turn into this. Do you know what freebasing is? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can I tell you where I learned what it was? Uh, please. So, and I I looked for it, dude, and I can't find it. It might be on Vimeo or something. Uh, so SNL had this skit, and this dates where it was. John Lovitz was in the skit and John Lovitz was playing David Crosby. So it's a game show called what's my addiction. And he would, every time he buzzed in, he would just yell free base. And so, <laughs> and so oh, I had, dude, I forgot about that. I had to learn what that was like. Now it's not funny thinking about like addiction is a serious oh thing God, or whatever, but dude, it's not, funny but it's John all. Lovitz. Lovitz is David Crosby is very funny sounding. Oh um, so yeah. So you, you mix up, Blow with what the ether, right? ether, which yeah, yeah. I, I Richard, Pry- Richard Pryor did that. Oh yeah. my god, dude! And so Richard Pryor set himself on fire. I know. So, do you know why Crosby starts doing this? Because he's done too much coke, and- yeah. His nose, he can't put it yeah. up his nose anymore. This is a quote from Crosby himself The nature of freebasing is that once you get started, you do it a lot. After you first taste, the next day, you do it a lot. <laughs> It's a peculiar drug that way. You become obsessive immediately. It doesn't take a week. You get obsessive and you want to do it until you fall out. A peculiar is not a word I've ever thought of using for a drug ever. <laughs> this is where things really start to go sideways. Stills and Nash refuse to work with him. He starts even using harder stuff. So he's using heroin, as we as that quote alluded to earlier. He's also using Persian brown, another oh. drug I had to look up. Man, I'm yeah, telling you, my search engine history here this week is it's in particularly they, bad shape. They're going to think that <laughs> he thinks he knows the dark web. Send the CIA. <laughs> what is, what is, what is Brown? Oh, Persian Brown. So What's this Persian is brown? Jerry Garcia was into this. It's also what killed river Phoenix. <gasps> oh, it, I just thought it was like heroin that killed. It's, it's meth and opiates mixed together. Oh my God. What the fuck is, what is that? So that's like, that's, let me tell you what like, this sort of stuff does to you. Even if you survive, 
140 miles an hour in an emergency yeah, yeah, brake. Yeah, that's exactly it. And even if you get through the actual high of it all, your body's going to start telling you to fuck off. And it does with, with David Crosby. There is a, a period here where he's having grand mal seizures. And that is just a fancy term for what you picture as a seizure. Like, you know, there's like a whole lot of different types of seizures and a lot of people say like, oh yeah, that's not really that dramatic or whatever. This is the dramatic seizure where you fall on the ground and shake and all that shit. He's also palling around with his girlfriend slash drug buddy, Jan Dance. She's like a receptionist at an entertainment office or something and they start palling around and getting really, really deep into drugs. She's as deep as, she, as he is. And a lot of people try to help. Graham Nash, this is the first, well, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of things that happened while they were playing music together. Um, yeah where Graham Nash could be really mad at David Crosby, but this is a good one. If you were just going to make a list of grievances, Graham Nash gets Crosby and Jan to enter Scripps hospital in Carlsbad, California, and they stay one night, but the hospital can't keep them without their permission. So they take off the next day and Nash loses his $3,500 deposit that he makes, man. God, those guys have been through so much. Then another arrest. Crosby has another grand mal seizure while driving on the freeway. Takes out a center divider. Uh, when they show up, there's drugs, there's paraphernalia, there's a there's a loaded forty five because there always is. Yeah, but but let's get all the way to the mugshot. Let's get all the way there. Uh, that happens two weeks later, two weeks after the grand mal seizure on the freeway. This is how bad things are. He's in Dallas, Texas, trying to make money. So, oh, I, I just thought he got like DUI-ish. So he's he's at a no, place. Like, is it a no, gig? Listen to this shit. It is a gig. It is a club called Cardi's, which no longer exists now. F- just for the next few minutes, uh, we're going to be talking about his this really rough period from '82 to '86, and I will say that out of respect or boredom or confusion or something else, most publications never go much deeper than to say that Crosby got tangled up during this period on a lot of charges. It's very hard to sort of take the spaghetti apart and figure out what happened in what order. I'm going to try to do it. The Spin Diddy interpretation of the book helps. There's a few other pieces out there uh, that I scraped together, some of its unattributed reporting. But here's what I think happens, okay? So back to this Dallas nightclub. Crosby's on the bill. He's supposed to play. And I can't figure out why. There's no reliable source that says what the reason was, but I think it's Crosby himself. There is a legit police raid on this club. Uh-uh. And and I, I'm pretty sure he's what they're what they're after. And oh my God, do they get what they're looking for? So police bust into the back room of this club and they find this guy, David Crosby, holding a propane tank in one hand and oh a my. brown bottle in the other. He's freebasing with a propane tank. Oh, caught in the act, and that's what gets him in front of the mugshot camera at Dallas County Jail. Gosh, the Persian brown thing. That's I'm stuck there. <laughs> a propane tank, dude. He's running around with a propane tank. Uh, so, gosh, this doesn't. Before we met, before we met, did you know at work I had to haul around a freaking propane tank sometimes? That doesn't surprise me. What were you doing yeah. with it? God blow up balloons. You know, <laughs> I don't know. It's like so at a party. Stupid. Nothing says party like balloons. You got to have more than one. Have you ever heard the Paul F. Tompkins bit, Elegant Balloons? 
It is one of my all-time favorite pieces of stand-up comedy. I'll put it in the show notes, and I will not ruin it here, but please enjoy it. Uh, Okay, so he is convicted in 83, but he gets out on bond while he's waiting for an appeal. And let me tell you what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't let a guy who is heavily addicted to drugs back out on bond. Uh, So it only gets worse. He's arrested again at one point. Ross, oh. California. Oh gosh! After the mugshot, there's it oh, there's way end. more. So he's driving a motorcycle all crazy. He gets pulled over. They find heroin and cocaine. And this next part is so wild. I initially only saw it in that breakdown of the book, and so I thought it was the workings of the screenwriter again. But I, I went looking. This is the stuff I do. Uh, out of just insane curiosity, I went looking for verification of this story because I was like, I this story is so ridiculous that I don't really believe it. I was able to dig up an Associated Press story from 85 that makes a passing mention that seems to confirm this, at least to some degree. Here's the story. So Crosby tries to flee the country, but, <laughs> but because he is so insanely addicted, his plan is terrible. Re- remember how... I offhandedly mentioned a few minutes ago that there was this whole incident where Crosby claims he was partying on a boat in Mexico. Yar, you did. Uh, that was his boat. Apparently, if you look into this, Crosby's boat was a thing. Like, especially in the 70s, there was a certain set of people who knew that that was where the party was going to be, was you wanted to get on David's boat. Hmm. So now, years later, he's back and forth across the country trying to keep himself out of incarceration. It occurs to him in his addicted haze dude i own a boat yeah so i got a boat forgot about the boat he and jan meet up and they 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 like i don't think hitch i don't know how they get there but they get to south florida to find this boat and the plan is they're going to go to costa rica because there's no extradition and they show up and they get to the boat and this is like one thing i read said it was like straight up, it's straight up like a scene out of a movie they show up and this boat is like beat to shit like there's no using this boat it's rotting it's in total disrepair and it's said that at this point crosby loses all hope and he turns himself in that okay that's right so he turned himself in i remember that like vaguely thinking that he would like how the whole thing ends is he gives up now between 82 and 86 there are attempts at rehab again but none of them take one of them jan helps him escape from and after all sorts of capers, close calls, bails, bonds, warrants, et cetera, et cetera, he's, he's got to face music and do the time. March 6, 1986, he gets sent to state prison in Huntsville, Texas. Oh, yeah, man. My buddy Ricky T, it's his birthday today. He's from that place. That's the <laughs> home of the largest maximum security prison in the United States. So, like he, he was, He's actually from the prison, or he's from Huntsville? Right, he's from Huntsville. Oh, okay. Ricky T, what's yeah, up? He, yeah, and, and uh, like days to confused, like wherever that's set. Um, uh, I think that's Linkletter. Is that who directed that? Yeah, yeah, that? that's Linkletter. Yeah, that's I think Linkletter is from Huntsville. Oh, all right, right on. Uh, so right. he, I mean, David Crosby, to his credit, finally gets off the cocaine and heroin while he's there. Uh, he's on pretty good behavior. This is the wildest thing to me. So he, like, what were the rules and laws? And, it, and I don't want to, we're not going to talk about the race issue here, but like, I guess famous and white give you just a ticket out because like think about how many times he jumps bond, tries to flee the country, all this stuff. He basically behaves himself for five months and kicks the habit and they let him out. 
You uh, mean three strike three strikes you're out wasn't 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 for Crosby? Apparently not. Thirty strikes you're out must have been the thing for him. August yeah. of eighty six, after five months, there's like some overcrowding issues and they're like, I don't know, let the rock star out. Um and I mean for the most part, this works, right? He gets arrested again in the early 2000s on some stuff that's not hard drugs. Do you, do you know, was it just pot? Or what, I, think, what I think it was just weed, yeah. It was like dumb yeah. stuff. It might have been the gun again. I, I, I lose track. But it was it was not hardcore stuff like this. Yeah. And, it, you know, this he, he says in a lot of interviews, this sort of becomes a talking point after a while, that this drug stint, or this this drug stint, this jail stint saved his life. Yeah, I've I've heard that too. Um, hey, hey, also everybody that's listening, we we don't have to throw all these in the show notes. But Rolling Stone, which people take lots of shots at Rolling Stone, it's pretty easy. You to take a lot of shots at Rolling Stone, sure, but proceed. Sure, I, I I used I had a subscription. Like I have I had, a I currently have a subscription. I can't write this show without access to their back catalog. Yeah, because and too, there's a paywall like now with it too. I know. And, if and you they, need my password, let me know. I mean, <clears throat> get your oh, own. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Um, so, it, and during the pandemic, at some point, Rolling Stone decided to give a like a column to David Crosby, where like they do the thing where they ask he reads he does like he re- reads mail. Oh my and gosh! There was, and and oh man, there's so, like they ask they ask about everything. Like people like there's like ho- like letters of someone who need like is hopeless. You know, it's someone's like, how do you feel? Like I feel the environment's going to kill us and we're all going to die. You know. But there's one there's he reads a letter and it's from a teenager. Like I don't know how old he was, but he said that I'm smoke I smoke pot, I smoke pot every day, and that's what I'm doing. And I'm starting to feel that I'm worthless and I'm worried that I'm since I do drugs all the time now, that I'm just gonna continue doing drugs and 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 what do I do? And so David Crosby literally says, I don't think there's a problem with you smoking bottle like every day. He goes, you do need to do stuff. Your life doesn't need to revolve around you smoking pot and sitting on the couch. That means that you're, that's, that's worthless. That's, you're going to feel worse. You need to do things with your life and get out. And, he's, and he said, but cocaine and heroin, like, don't, don't do those. He goes, it'll kill you. He goes, just ask me. Oh, my God, dude. Maybe the most remarkable part of this whole story is that that crazy junkie girlfriend, Jan Dance, they get married and spend the rest of their lives together. She's the one that tips off the press to his death. They've been together ever since the late 70s or early 80s. Yeah, and, and crazy junkie girlfriend, come on, Brian. It, it isn't prison. It saved his life. She did. Because they're, they're all much smarter than we are. That's true. It, yeah, but I, I mean, mean, he need, he needed to, that, that his rehab was prison. But not um, only are long marriages among rock stars rare, they I mean, when the first half decade is defined by addiction, like yeah. that's almost unheard of. I mean, yeah. bravo to those. And it's funny if you there's this video I think I put in the show notes that you sent me where the LA Times like has a weed Ugh. correspondent now. Oh yeah, and it's a video, and he's at his house. Yeah, and he goes and, and hangs out with him, and he just talk like I mean, this is a, this was only in the last couple of years, so he's like an eighty year old man talking about how he and his wife of forty something years like get naked and hang out in their bed and watch TV and smoke weed as uh, that's like their evening on a yeah. Tuesday. But also, but also they have they grow they grow their own, and oh, like yeah, he show yeah, he shows yeah. the. There was a whole thing like, where he was going to try to do his whole strain, his own, his own cross. What do you call it? 
Cross is crazy just, or something. I, don't I think remember the, what it was. I think it was the cross or whatever, but yeah. it never it never happened. Well, despite these wild stories about him and and the battle with drugs, there are a lot of karmic balances that happen in the later years that I think sometimes fly under the radar. And one of them is the aforementioned intro to me for David Crosby. I mean, I, I knew sort of who he was, but I was a big Melissa Etheridge fan. I still am, man. Uh, always have been a fan of her work. And when this whole thing went down, where suddenly she and Julie Cypher were having a kid, and uh, we think back now, it seems so ridiculous that we would be fixating over this as a culture, but this was a big deal. It was they, a, yeah, the Rolling Stone announced it, right? Cover. So, yeah, and it's it's like three years in, right, where they they yeah. finally decide to tell everyone who the father is. So it wasn't like before they had the kid. They just had the kid and said that there was a there was an anonymous donor. But here's the thing. So we were talking about David and Jan. They do a lot together in those four or five decades as a couple. One of the more curious things I discovered is that they used to vacation with Melissa Etheridge and Julie Cipher. And on one of these oh, vacations, uh, it's Jan, not David. Jan tells Melissa that, hey, if you guys want to have kids, I'm sure David would hook you up. <laughs> I'm sure he'd yeah, help you out. I I just always thought it was such a, a a bad idea. Wondering about like, well, is that you know like there's that nature nurture thing like, does that kid well, have addiction problems? Just I mean like so left any left turn like you I know. don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this because that is such a sensitive subject and there's a lot of things that can go wrong. But you yeah. do know that the one of those two children died. Yes. Yeah, from addiction. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, right. very, very tragic. Um, but you dug up another story that get, gets mentioned way less about David. And this sort of, it got a little bit of press after he died. I had never heard this. Tell me what you learned about, about a certain young girl that he helped. Oh, the Drew Barrymore story, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And this was, this came from Stern, too. So... Uh, Drew Barrymore is in rehab, and she's 14, and Crosby mentioned that he had, you know, he had seen a picture of her in a magazine, and she's like under 10, and she's smoking a cigarette at a party, Yeah, you know, and I mean, her life was so crazy. So she's in rehab, and is 14, and it, and it was a place where, I guess, Jan and David knew the, the director of the I rehab. I got the sense that they had been in that same rehab. Yeah. Right. Or at least There's, they knew the guy from their stints in rehab. Yeah. And and he he actually contacted Crosby and said, Drew Barrymore is here and her insurance is about to run out and we don't want to discharge her to Holy her family. Shit. And so he 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 like he took not only did they take her, like they took her to school and they just tried to give like it was like six months or something. It wasn't like a, a year, but they took her in. Um so she wouldn't have to go home. Yeah, I put one of the reports about that in the show notes and it goes into more detail and it's worth a read. It's, it's beautiful stuff that they just like, and they hadn't been parents together. Right. I mean, he, he had father children, but they hadn't really been parents, Jan and David themselves. And so uh, they, they're just sort of, you know, in the dark, but trying their best to help this troubled girl who uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Now I don't want to make him sound like a total saint. Um, he, like I said, he never stopped being mouthy. And all the way up to the end, he was... Um, I mean, you, there was a video you sent me of Graham Nash talking about how he, you know, never really got over the way David treated him. Oh, so sad. It's so freaking sad to watch. 
And then there's yeah. the Neil Young, Daryl Hannah stuff that we alluded to earlier, where when he started dating Daryl Hannah, David Crosby said terrible stuff, and then he then he sort of tries to apologize for it. But all in all, man, he is the poster child for rock and roll counterculture in a lot of ways. Yeah, and you know, like rock and roll cowboy, you know, and like who who walks away from freebasing? And it's pretty incredible. And, yeah, yeah. And and, and and I mean, let's not undersell. I mean, we sort of said this at the beginning, but what a talent. Yeah, he was in the birds and he was in he was his <laughs> I mean, he had, like, technical talent. Like, there's a lot of rock stars. Like, I mean, you know, even if we yeah. said, like, Mick Jagger, right? Like, Mick Jagger was a personality, or is <laughs> a personality, but he's not necessarily, you don't hear that voice and think, like, oh, that's there's, like, some real technical proficiency there, right? Like, David Crosby, like, real yeah. technical proficiency. <clears throat> yeah, and, and beautiful, too. And Crosby, Stills, and Nash, people shorthand it and go CSN or CSNY, and that C, is that first one is David. It's the first one in first yeah. one in wowzers man uh if you want to get involved if you've got uh anything to add to this conversation or you want to give us an idea on how to start another one about something else uh please send us an email it's we are the story guys at gmail.com we always love to hear from you instagram is a fun place to hang out we uh post about stuff we're working on and uh upcoming shows and we'll interact with you there too it's a backslash rock and roll bedtime stories and then we need you to do something until next time what is that murdoch that's keep telling stories. And, and, and listen, don't, don't try freebasing. Yeah. I was going to say it. I just figured it was obvious. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.